Welcome to the Rock Community Church. If you are new with us, uh, we just want to welcome you, and we're happy you're here. Uh, my name is Rob Selleck. Uh, if you don't know me, I'm Pastor John. We've got uh, so many people this week. I've heard, oh, don't shake my hand, don't hug me, because I'm sick. Um, he, so he's doing good. He was at uh, the last service here, um, and he's feeling better. Um, so, but as always, it's a privilege for me to be here with you guys. Um, I was thinking, it's interesting, how we learn as humans, as people. I was seven years old, and all the family was over at my parents' house. It was Thanksgiving, my aunts, uncles, grandparents, my cousins, and when I was little, in my dad's backyard, he had like horse property, and it was just an open field, and there's enough room for me to ride my go-kart around. I could do a big oval trap, uh, track or like a figure eight. And all, the, all my family was on the patio, and I was out there riding, thinking I was so cool. They were watching me, raising dust. And I come in, and I park my go-kart. I turn it off, and I walk around to the back. It was just like a little lawnmower engine. And I, and I touch the, the muffler. Have you ever burnt yourself? Yeah. You remember the first time you burnt yourself, and it feels like your heart's thumping, pounding, wherever it is that you burnt yourself? It just is an awkward pain. It's interesting, I, I think about that situation and when stuff like that happens in life, no one had to remind Rob from that day forward, oh, don't touch something that's hot. I, I knew it. I learned it. There, there was no doubt in my mind. These natural consequences, they're good teaching tools for us. And in reality, when we touch it, ouch, we don't like it and no one has to remind us. I don't like the pain. I don't like the, what happened. I, in fact, I'm going to avoid that. I'm going to stay away from it. No one had to write like the rules of the house on the fridge. Rob, don't touch things that are hot. I got it. It's interesting. Look at a little kid. Take a little kid that's already been stung by a bee. And the next time they're standing there and a bee comes around, what will they do? Freak out. It doesn't matter what you do to console them. They are freaking out, flailing. Yesterday we were at a soccer game and we were up in the, the bleachers and my wife, there was a bee at least three, four feet away. That's in my hair. Because ouch, we don't like that. We want to avoid that at all costs. Keep it away from me. I don't need it. Ouch. Then I, I remember my daughter. I was teaching her how to ride a bike. Now she's at the stage of life where I'm teaching her how to drive a car. I know. <laughs> Scary. Training wheels on the bike. Everything's going good. She's having a great time. <laughs> Motoring all over the place. And it's the big day. Let's take the training wheels off. Well, of course, at this time in her mind, perfect. Take the training wheels off. We got them off. We got her. I'm doing the old seat hold, handlebar hold. All right, just keep going. Everything's going good. Let go. She's doing good. And she goes to make the turn crash right scuff the knees scrape the hands <gasps> the crying and and you console them right now we just learned we don't like natural consequences of pain ouch stay away from it but what do we do when our kid falls off the bike we get them to quit crying and then we tell them hey what i i don't want to get back on that bike are you kidding me ouch i don't like the pain i want to avoid that and what an awesome lesson for mature kids and us mature adults to realize that there's some things in life, even though there's an ouch, 
the best thing for us is through it. Not to avoid it, not to pull back. And we're going to see an awesome story this morning out of the Bible of a woman who experiences some ouches of major magnitude. And I want us to note how she responds. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 15. Now, as we read through it, we're going to kind of go through this story twice. The first time we go through it, I want you to go through it very practically. In fact, I want to challenge you to put yourself in the position of this woman. Guys, just, just try to do it. I think it'll be, uh, it'll be fascinating. Matthew chapter 15, we're going to start in verse 21. It says, Jesus went away from there. Let me give you some background. There is Galilee. Galilee is where he's been doing his ministry for roughly the previous two years. At this point, Jesus' ministry is flourishing. It's booming. It's robust. People are aware of him. They want to see him. They're gathering in groves to witness his miracles, his healings, and his wonders. To hear his teaching, to be healed and fed. A lot of pressure is going on because of this. A lot of different groups within society have a lot of different expectations from Jesus. All the way from there is a segment of Jews that wanted him to rise up as a military power and, and build an army. Push back the Romans. Take back what's theirs. The Pharisees and the scribes at this point in time don't like Jesus because they feel that he's going to take their power and their influence in fact, if you read prior to this where we're reading, he, he corrects them and he's, he's speaking boldly the truths of God that they've distorted and they don't like it. John the, baptism was, John the Baptist was just put to death by Herod. And let me tell you, if Jesus exposed himself to Herod at this point, he would have killed him too. So it says Jesus went away from there and withdrew. We need to note it's withdrew. He left Galilee, the place he's been doing ministry, the focus, the primary target of people he was ministering to and withdrew. This was not an expansion of the missionary field for him. This was a retreat. This was a little bit of a time for some R&R. &R. It's, it's him and he's with his 12 disciples. And he's tried to do this before, actually. The Sea of Galilee, they went around to the other side up in the foothills thinking they're going to get some peace and quiet. And when they got there, they were met with a huge group of people. So Jesus said, man, we got to, hey, Tim Kepler. How's it going, sir? They get in a boat, and they said, oh, there's people here. So they could go across the Sea of Galilee somewhere else. And guess what they run into? More people. They're just trying to have a, a retreat. And then even after that, they said they go into these rural farmlands. And guess who was out in the rural farmlands? More people. So here he is with his 12. Withdrew, and he withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And this was like, guy's trip. Man's retreat. Oh. Verse 22. And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry. 
Let's stop right there. I see three problems so far in verse 22. First of all, she was a Canaanite. As you might know, Jews and Gentiles did not get along. They did not have any respect for each other. The Jews were a proud people. Well, they were educated, sophisticated, and the Gentiles were not. They were God's chosen people. So they already had a disdain for each other, but she was a Canaanite woman. Remember when the children of Israel were out in the desert and God was going to give them the promised land, Canaan? Remember who lived in Canaan? The Canaanites. They went, they sent 12 spies to see what it's going to do. They sent a plan of attack. And God said, I will give you that land if you kill every man, woman, and child of the Canaanites. So this woman's a Canaanite, and the only reason she even exists is because of the disobedience of the Jews when they were wandering in the wilderness. They had no respect for Canaanites. In fact, biblically it says that they were considered a cancer on the body of like mankind to be wiped out. So that's one problem. A Canaanite. The second problem is she was a she. This was guys weekend. Women's liberation had not yet happened in this culture. Women were to be quiet and not interrupt and to stay covered. And then let's be real, the third problem, and she began to cry. A group of guys, Canaanite woman, crying. Not what the disciples probably had in mind for their guys' weekend with the Lord. I'm sure they were a little excited to kind of have some one-on-one time with Jesus. Let's face it. And I'm sure Jesus had some really interesting things he wanted to share with them, knowing that the cross is only about 12 months away to prepare them. And here's this woman, Canaanite woman, that's crying, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. Let's get some context here. This land... Tyra, this was about a 50-mile trip from Galilee. Galilee was a flat, low-elevation, hot climate. This was a a mountainous region, uh, elevated, cooler. It's modern-day Libya. About 50, it's like going from Corona to Big Bear. She cries out, saying, have mercy on me. In her land, her to cry out to the Lord, they weren't. Like the Jews, they weren't expecting a Messiah. In fact, they were a pagan community. They believed in idols. So what she's doing right there, it's radical. She's basically saying, everything I am in my community, my family, my friends, I'm putting aside, and right now, I'm disclaiming it all, and I'm saying, have mercy on me, I declare you Lord, son of David. This woman is desperate. I don't know if you have daughters, For at least me, probably most dads, when your daughter's in distress, it's heavy. And for moms, when your daughter's in distress, it's worrisome. And I don't think this daughter was just having a little bit of problem with demons. I think this was a a problem of great magnitude. And she cries out, I need help. Verse 23. 
says, but he did not answer her a word. This is a desperate situation. This is a dire woman. She's laid it all on the line. She's left nothing. I need help. And he doesn't answer. I don't know about you, but I'm sitting here thinking, ouch. Ouch, that hurts. I don't like that. It's one thing if you don't want to help me, but at least have the respect to tell me so. Say something. Come on. I don't deserve this, do I? But he didn't answer her a word. Ouch. Let's go on. And the disciples came and implored him, saying, (laughs) implored him, saying, send her away. Because she keeps shouting at us. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm her, I'm sitting here thinking, ouch. I thought you were proclaiming to be God-man, Jesus. And what's up with your leadership team? Imploring, pleading, begging, send her out of here. Man, she bugs. Heal her, don't heal her, I don't know, but let's get her moving on. And the reality is, Lord, if you don't, she's raising havoc, wailing and screaming. Man, we're going to blow our cover and our retreat's over. Ouch. Send her away. She keeps shouting at us. And he finally, verse 24, but he answered and said, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was her, I'd be thinking, ouch. Who do you you think you are and what am I? This time, if I was her, I might be thinking, I got better things to do with my time. I can go get treated like this elsewhere. Thanks, but no thanks. But look at verse 25, a response. It's awesome. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. Pretty good response. Verse 26, and he answered and said, it is not good, this is Jesus, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I don't know about you, but if I was her, I'm thinking, ouch, that hurts. That doesn't seem right. And this woman says, but she said, verse 27, yes, Lord. But even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Wow. Verse 28, then Jesus said to her, O woman, O woman, your faith is great. That's quite a statement right there. It shall be done for you as you wish. It says her daughter was healed at once. Oh, woman, your faith is great. This is an awesome story. We're going to go through it again and, and, and discover what's going on here. So it's a story you could easily read if you're reading Matthew and read right by it and not think anything of it, but there's a lot in here. Let's open up in prayer first. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes and open our ears that we might see and hear things from your word. 
Lord, if we need to be convicted this morning, give us the hearts that would invite you to convict us. If we need to be challenged, Lord, well, then challenge us. And if we need to be comforted, please, please, please comfort us. Lord, it's in your son's name we pray. And we say, amen. Now, what I really want you guys to notice in this is verse 28. Great is your faith. This is a narrative on great faith. It's an interesting word, great. If you look it up in the Greek, the the, the more modern day translation would be mega. He's saying you got mega faith. So I was thinking it might be interesting for us to discover and find out and learn from what constitutes this woman's faith as great. The Bible speaks a lot about faith and it gives a lot of different types of faith. It's got little faith, weak faith, strong faith and abiding faith, continuing faith, bold faith, rich faith, obedient faith, steadfast faith, dead faith, precious faith, common faith, working faith, all types of faith in the Bible. But what is the nature of great, mega faith? Now, by the way, this isn't the first time our Lord has used this term, great faith. In chapter 8, uh, there's a centurion that came to him and asked him to perform a miracle for one of his servants who has been paralyzed. And anyways, through the story, Jesus answered, answered the, the centurion guard and said, I have not found such a great faith in all of Israel. Same word, same type of faith. So we've seen it. This is the second time he uses that. It's interesting to me that both times he's done it, it's to the Gentiles, not to a Jewish person. But I believe as we look at this great faith, it will show us a beautiful picture of saving faith. Now, the text does not specifically say that this woman entered into salvation or that she was redeemed from sin. But the very statement of our Lord about her great faith and the very nature of faith itself, I think it becomes fairly obvious that she came all the way to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In a real sense, this is a very genuine picture of saving faith. What I love about it, she's a Gentile. At this time, she's outside of the covenant. She is an outcast, a sinner from a group of sinners. She has no right to claim the covenant. She has no worthiness to ask anything from Jesus. So for me, she's the perfect example of a sinner who comes without right, who comes without privilege, who comes without worthiness, but embraces Jesus Christ by faith. I think at this point in the story, we can logically conclude that she is utterly dissatisfied with her idols. We talked about it. Her daughter's in bad shape, and this is a desperate mom willing to do whatever, and she's gone through everything she could. She's wailed out and screamed and trying to get those small G God's attentions. It didn't work. She's a desperate woman. She leaves all that. And in her heart believes Jesus Christ can meet her needs. And the end result is it says, he's, you have great faith. Five characteristics, I think, and we can go through them pretty quick, of great faith. The first element of this type of great faith is your faith needs to be properly directed. She put her faith in the right person. 
She was delusioned with idols. She was delusioned with deities and false gods. But now she put her faith in the right object. And this is the first, the foremost characteristic of great faith. She has the right object. Today, you hear people all the time talking about, well, I've got faith, and I believe in this, and I believe in that, and it covers everything. But the problem is a lot of that type of faith isn't in the right object. In fact, everyone's got faith, whether they realize it or not. Even people who say, I don't believe in anything, it takes faith to believe that. Unfortunately, that type of belief is, is nothing. Let's think of it like this. Let's say we're in an airplane. And you decide you're going to jump out of the airplane without a parachute. But you believe. But you have faith. It's all going to be all right. What do you think? Is that faith or is it foolishness? Now, if you j- were going to jump out of an airplane and you had a parachute on, and you have now what? Faith in the object that the parachute's going to deploy, and you're going to land and you're going to be okay. Well, that's sensible faith. So when we're talking about relationship with God, our faith has to be directed into the right object. And we've got people who believe in love and and music and work and finances and friends. All good things. But not when we're talking about a relationship with God. It's not directed at the right object. And this woman here is turning her back on the idols. She's now believing in the Lord, the son of David. The object of her faith is now correct. Wishful thinking, unfortunately, is not faith. It is just an illusion. Great faith always has the right object. Turning from false gods to the real God. The fake deity to the one true, real deity. And I'm sure idols up to this point were okay for her but not when it really mattered. They couldn't do for her what she needed Christ to do for her. Peter in Acts 4.12 says, Neither is there salvation in any other name but Jesus Christ. It will be found nowhere else. must be directed at the right object. Paul in Acts 20.22, he says that we preach repentance towards God and faith in who? Our Lord Jesus Christ. It must be directed in the right object. And unfortunately, there will be a lot of really good, good, good intended people that will not be with God in heaven because unfortunately they put their faith in the wrong object. They believed in the wrong thing. They might have believed really hard with a lot of faith, but unfortunately it's the wrong object. Great faith has the right object. It's properly directed. This woman coming out of paganism and putting her faith into Christ is an example of that great faith. So not only is great faith properly directed, but number two, it is repentant. Verse 22, a woman, a Canaanite woman came from that region and cried out to him saying, have mercy on me. And what does that mean? What does mercy say? Does mercy say, oh, I'm here to tell you what I deserve? No, mercy in this context says, I am here in spite of the fact that I don't deserve anything. That is what this lady here is asking for, just simple, raw mercy. The basic assumption of anyone who seeks mercy is that they carry with them a sense of unworthiness. 
She's not demanding anything. It's not her telling God what she deserves. Because trust me, we don't want what we deserve from God. We want his mercy. This woman didn't come and say, I demand this or I demand that. Just mercy. I don't deserve anything. Just mercy. And yeah, by the way, mercy is a pretty biblical term. It's found in the Bible over 500 times. David cries out in Psalms 51, Oh, have mercy on me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness, according to your tender mercies. We see here repentance, a sense of unworthiness, undeserving penance. She's not only turning from God to idols, but there's a sense of recognition that she was simply asking for a favor, mercy from God. She didn't deserve it. Faith and repentance are kind of the same thing. It's not like you add one to the other. Repentance is really actually already in faith. It's inseparable companion. Faith and repentance are kind of like Siamese twins. They can't be taken apart. They're virtually joined together. It's kind of like two spokes to the same wheel. Kind of like two handles to the same plow. Faith and repentance, correct faith. Repentance has been described as a broken heart for sin and a broken heart from sin. It's a change of mind in the most thorough and radical form. So when we talk about repentance, we're not really adding anything to faith. It's inherent in faith. And she's coming saying, I'm not worthy. Give me mercy. We know that God does not desire that any should perish, but all shall come to repentance. Peter says God doesn't slack concerning his promise or willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance, salvation. It's two of the same. Romans 2, 4, Paul says, the goodness of God is meant to lead you to repentance, salvation. So this woman coming and turning from idols with a sense of unworthiness, there was repentance in that. The repentance was a turning to God. And Jesus says, your faith is great. Now there's a third element. Her faith wasn't only properly directed. It wasn't just repentant, but it was reverent. Listen to what she says. She says, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. She gives him such a reverent title, really two titles. The first is Lord, identifying and confirming there's a sovereign deity to this man. She says, son of David, this was key, that he is the promised Messiah and Savior. In that sentence, she's saying much more than, yes, sir. She's acknowledging his supernatural power. I mean, think about it. The fact that she seeks him out because her daughter's demon-possessed and asking him to save her is proclaiming that I believe you have power over demons, Satan, and darkness. Then she calls him son of David. It's a messianic title. The right to be king. From the right bloodline. She treats him with great dignity. It must have been pretty refreshing for Jesus at this time to be treated like that. Because realistically, in Galilee, he was getting a lot of the opposite. I was looking at some of the names he was called in Galilee by the Jews. He was called a drunk. Friend of publicans, a sinner. They accused him of being demon-possessed. And all other types of things he was called to be smeared. But not this lady. Not with her great faith. She was reverent. She had a sense of respect 
in awe. And what's interesting is she didn't even fully understand the fullness of the lordship of Christ. She would not have understood the, the sweeping realities of what these titles meant. But she sees that there's some sense of lordship, of power, of supernatural character, and she acknowledges it. And she comes to Jesus believing that he has power over darkness and affirms that his power is greater than the small g idols that she's been worshiping and the little deities who at this point she admits can render no service to her. Her faith was astounding. In great faith, it's, it's properly targeted. It's repentant. It's reverent. Let me give you the fourth thought, which is really the heart of the text here. Great faith is persistent. We note in the beginning of verse 23, we see Jesus starting to put up these barriers for this woman. And watch what happens. It's interesting. Verse 3, she comes with all this on her heart, all this emotion, and she pours it out in a desperate state. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter's severely demon-possessed. But he answers her not a word. He didn't say a word to her. You might be thinking, well, that's not like Christ. I mean, why would he do that? To me, I'm reading this, I'm thinking, this seems really tough. It's kind of like the physician holding back the remedy. Why? Did he care? Well, sure he did. Did he have compassion? Of course he did. But what's he doing? Why didn't he do anything? I think a part of it is he's probably seen enough of the shallowness, the superficiality of people. Back in Galilee, people who came and, and, and got what they wanted and they left. There's enough of that shallow, weedy, rocky soil. But I believe here with this woman, he had a purpose. This was intentional. I believe he wanted to strengthen her. He wanted to test this woman to grow or to pull her faith into full blossom. So he puts up a barrier that she must persist through. And in doing so, she will show the reality of her true faith. Now we know with Christ, there really is no indifference on his part. But the desire of moving this woman to great, saving, mega type of faith. The Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, Jesus talks about the two gates. Right? Wide is the, the path. And many will find it. But it leads to where? Destruction. Narrow is the gate and only few will find it. It'll lead to salvation. There's a parallel account in Mark, and it literally says that we will have to persevere through the small gate. In fact, in the, Greeks, in the Greek words, it's so small that we got to get through that gate, we got to go through with nothing. Might jog some of our theology a little bit. But literally agonizing their way into the kingdom. Jesus isn't looking for shallow self-deceived, superficial faith. And he wants to demonstrate to this woman the truest faith, so he puts up these barriers through only which genuine faith will persist. So he starts off just by saying nothing. Now the disciples aren't so nearly in control as Christ is, right? Urging him to send her away. Heal her, don't heal her, I don't know. But get rid of her. We've healed thousands of people before. Let's put her in there too and move her on. What it indicates to me is this was probably going on for a little while. 
She was probably crying out to Jesus for a while. He had, didn't say anything for a while. Enough for the disciples to be like, enough, enough, let's have, have a talk and implore him to send her away. This is taking place over a period of time. Him just continuing to be silent while she's yelling, screaming out. And him doing nothing. Disciples concerned, man, our man retreat's going to get ruined. Then he answers her finally, and he said to her, it says, I was not sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Okay, that seems like a terrible thing to say too. Sorry, lady, you're not a Jew. I can't help you. So why would he say that? At this point, biblically, we've seen he's already healed the centurion servant, not a Jew. He's given grace to the Samaritan, not a Jew. In fact, in Matthew 4, it says, Multitudes have come out of this region, Tyre and Sidon, and they were healed, and demons were cast, cast out of them. So what's up with this now? I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It's like, it'd be like saying, go away. We know you're in great need and you have a lot of problems, but you're not a member of our church. Can you imagine? What is he saying? I think there's a couple things that we can learn here. First of all, this is right after the disciples were talking to him. So I think there's a lot of this that is given back to the disciples. He's saying, first of all, the plan is still on course. It's not time yet to turn our back onto Israel. In spite of their host, uh, hostility, thank you, their hatred, their bitterness, despite their murderous plots against me, I'm still calling them to repentance. We will go back and stay on course. We'll go back to Israel. We'll preach to them, and we will call them to believe. We will call them to come into the kingdom. We'll do it right up to the end. In fact, Peter, in Acts 3, at the beginning of the church, he's, he's teaching to the Jews, and he tells them, you have killed the prince of life. He's giving them a sermon. And at the end of that sermon, he says, but you're still the sons of the covenant. Basically saying, but God is still calling you out. See, the plan was that God would be sent God would send the Messiah to Israel, and then through Israel, the world would be reached. That was the prophecy. So Jesus is, is saying, I'm not turning my back on Israel yet, but this is not the time to move to the Gentiles. We're still on plan. We're still going to keep our focus. In essence, I, by God, don't really have anything to do here because I'm sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So for the disciples, I think it was an important note, but let's be realistic. To this woman, it was still a Kind of a slap in the face. And I would imagine there would be a lot of us at this point who would say, uh, forget it. Maybe I should just go back to what I was doing. The problem with her, what she was doing, it didn't work and she knew it. The idols weren't going to do anything. And what's amazing about her, it didn't deter her at all. The Lord was testing her. And she went right through the barrier. The Lord's trying to grow and separate her faith so it's not shallow, it's not superficial, but so it's genuine. We can move forward and look at verse 25. In so doing, we'll see the next char characteristic of her faith, which was it was humble. Great faith is proper, properly targeted, it's repentant, it's reverent, persistent, and it's humble. It says, then she came and worshipped him. I mean, after all this, this is a, a humble lady. She's not mad 
but she's worshiping. Lord, she just simply says, help me. Humbly worshiping. This word worship would indicate to us more than likely she is on her knees, face down, if they're outside in the dirt, worshiping God. And that is the right attitude. He puts up this barrier first of silence. Then she's got to deal with the disciples kind of telling her to get rid of them. Then he gives her this, this barrier of, well, you're not my purpose. But to her, it doesn't matter. She plunges through both of these barriers. She doesn't care about that. She knows he's Lord and she wants his help. It's great faith. There's a great truth here. Her request was so humble. Bowed down, head more likely in the dirt. Just help me, Lord. Not arguing, not raising theological debates. Just humble. In deep uh, distress, but with no pride. She didn't bring up the issue, well, who do you think you are? Do you think you're better than everyone else? She just comes, Lord, it's me. Not, Lord, are you thrilled I finally came home? I came to you. No, no, it's, it's all about you. I, I Just help me, please. Then the Lord says to her, well, it's not right, or we could translate that, it's not reasonable to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Yeah, this is kind of getting painful. First he's silent, then he reminds her she's not a, a, a Jewish person, and now he's calling her a dog. And yet it's another barrier. Maybe you're thinking, man, is the Lord trying to convert this woman or not? What's he doing? I think it's important to note that there's two words in the Greek for dog. One word is a kind of a mangy, scroungy, mongrel, vicious type of dog that ran around in packs, kind of eating the garbage and were a nuisance. And then there was another word for, it was more of a little pet house dog. And that is the word he is using here. This is not like a harsh, vicious statement to her. We have dogs nowadays, right? We all love dogs, and they're kind of a part of our family. But moms and dads, when it's time to eat, and you call everyone to the table, and your kids come, the dog, if it's an inside dog, does it come too? Yeah. yeah. Woo, that's best behavior at dinner time. He's sitting, and they're saying kind of like what we talked about before. My purpose is not yet for you to give my ministry to the Gentiles, but is to feed the Jewish people. Pretty harsh. It could come across like that. You might be thinking, yeah, ouch. But what is he doing? Continuing to test her faith. And it's interesting. Biblically, we see this quite a few times. Think about Abraham, right? Father Abraham had many sons. Right? And he gave given a, a, a marvelous promise. You're going to have a son. And through this son, these great things are going to happen. The sand on the beach and the stars and the land and the people from you. Did it happen right away? No. no. Like a lifetime later. But it's interesting, what does Romans 4 tell us about Abraham during that time? Abraham could have thrown his hands up and said, Lord, you said. No, it says Abraham's, during this time, Abraham's faith grew strong. Abraham was strengthened by this test. I think about the time that the, the Lord was going to feed the multitudes. He knew he had it all under control. He knew he was going to be able to feed them. Philip was with him. Philip was freaking out. Lord, what are we going to do, man? Look at all these people. How are we going to feed them all? How are we going to do it? 
And you see the Lord interacting with Philip, almost implanting this into to Philip's mind the whole time. But he knew. And the Bible says, why do you do that? Oh, to test Philip. To work on Philip's faith. God knows what he's doing. Think about Lazarus. A good friend. Sick. Really sick. He could have came when he was sick. He died. He could have came when he died. He waited four days to come. Why do you wait? John 11 tells us, for your sake that you may believe. They could have said, ouch. And that's exactly what he's doing with this woman. Drawing out her faith, letting it be demonstrated in reality. His delays are her test. Putting up fences for her to plow through. And I like this woman. This woman's really sharp. He gives the barriers. It's not fitting to take the children's bread and give it to dog. And her response is yes. It's not emotional, it's just sharp. But yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. I like that. She picks up on his analogy and she takes it a step further. She's persistent. And what she said was true. Through that time, Jesus was feeding the children of Israel. And at that time, crumbs were dropping to the Gentiles. And we see it all throughout the gospel account. And we know... That eventually, at this point in time, the dawn will come when the church would be born and the Gentiles would be embraced. But here we see a pretty amazing woman, yeah? I, I, got, a, I got a call to teach this weekend on Tuesday, Christmas Eve, and so I kind of dove in and thought, man, where, where can we teach out of? And I was thinking about this verse, and it was interesting uh, I started studying it and, 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 and looking it up, trying to get it all figured out because there's kind of a lot in this simple little passage. And I was thinking, the reality is we all have a story like this. In our salvation, and if you're not in salvation, God is faithful to complete the work he started. The ouches will come. I think what we can learn from this, though, is how great is your faith? How will you respond? And sometimes the ouches, the things we don't want, and the things we could definitely do without, well, therefore, are good. What's important is our response. Are we going to remain faithful and keep our faith directed on the right object? Are we going to keep that repentive heart? Are we going to, through the midst of it, hold him reverent? I don't like this. I don't like that. The cliques, the this, the church, the that, the leadership, the pastor, the this. We're going to have persistence. He'll be faithful. And are we going to wrap it all up in humility? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. 
to prosper you, to give you a hope and a future. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for taking a man's trip to Tyre, to encountering this woman and allowing us to read about it in your word. Lord, help us to learn from this story, from this woman with what you call great faith. And be a people who fall so madly and deeply in love with you that we would persevere. We would display humility. We would hold your name with reverence. Lord, we'd be quick to ask for forgiveness. Lord, and we wouldn't stray to the left or the right, but we'd stay focused just on who your son is and what he gave to us. I thank you for everyone who's in this room. Lord, I pray blessings for them this week and and all they're going about. Bring them back here safe next week. It's in your son's name we all say. Amen. Amen. You guys have a wonderful week. Thank you so much. Thank you.